Hey, if you're a workplace coach or work in HR or anyone working with challenging conflict situations at work, we've created a coaching method that any coach can learn. The goal of New Ways for Work Coaching is to help employees or whoever is taking it to learn personal relationship skills for productive relationships. Essentially, it gives employees a chance to learn new skills and to change before big decisions are made about their employment. Sometimes they're just lacking skills and New Ways will teach them. If you'd like to know more about it, we offer our New Ways for Work coaching training two to three times a year. And these trainings are a combination of on-demand, which you can watch 24-7, and Zoom training with Sherilyn Knapp and Bill Eddy on the on-demand portions. You'll find the link for this in the show notes below. Sign up at highconflictinstitute.com forward slash upcoming dash courses or email us at info at highconflictinstitute.com. Welcome to It's All Your Fault on True Story FM, the one and only podcast dedicated to helping you identify and deal with the most challenging human interactions, those with someone who may have a high conflict personality. I'm Megan Hunter, and I'm here with my co-host, Bill Eddy. Hi, everybody. We're the co-founders of the High Conflict Institute in San Diego, California. In this episode, we will discuss the much-publicized legal case of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, which is ripe with all kinds of high-conflict allegations. So are they true? Are they false? Can we really ever know? And how should we think about it? But first, a couple of notes. If you have a question about high-conflict situations or people, send them to us at podcast at highconflictinstitute.com or on our website at highconflictinstitute.com slash podcast, where you'll also find the show notes and links. And please give us a rate or review and tell your friends, colleagues, or family about us, especially if they're dealing with a high-conflict situation. We're very grateful. Now, let's talk high-conflict. So this story, Bill, about Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, <laughs> yes. it's, uh, it's the, the, it's being heard around the world, so to speak, right. I guess. Um, there's all kinds of allegations and accusations back and forth. So I, I, I guess the legal case is one of um, a, a defamation case that Johnny Depp has filed against his ex-wife, Amber Heard. Um, and I, it's, I don't know, for a large, large sum of money, right? So the legal case has been um, in court a few weeks and the allegations have just been flying back and forth just unbelievably. So they're both accusing each other, you know, as part of it, um, of domestic violence. I mean, we've heard uh, and seen pictures of, you know, a severed finger and pictures of the home they were staying at in Australia that, you know, has dents in the wall and a chunk missing out of the marble staircase. And we've seen pictures of Mr. Depp on a couch, you know, throwing up and passed out and it's all kinds of things. And um it's it's a tough one. So, you know, domestic violence is is very serious and the courts and, you know, people who work in the field are faced with trying to sort these issues out. And it's really tough. So that's what we'll talk about today. So let's start by discussing different types of DV. 
with what we've seen, and, and our background's been a lot with family law, where there's a lot, probably 50% of family court cases um, have allegations of domestic violence, which may or may not be true, majority of them true, of course. But there's four types that, that have really been identified and helpful to think about in working with cases and understanding them. One is what they call coercive control, which means that one person tries to control the other person's life, that they try to control their social relationships, their finances, may try to isolate them, coerce them into sex, all of these things. And so there's one person really trying to dominate the other person, and the other person lives in fear. It's walking on eggshells every day, every hour of the day those types of things. And these generally are the more extreme cases where you do end up with people with physical injuries and sometimes visits to the hospital. And sometimes you have serious injury or death coming from this. So this is the coercive control type of domestic violence. Then there's what they call situational couple violence, which is two people who aren't afraid of each other, but they really lack you know, relationship conflict resolution skills. And so they may push or shove or occasionally throw something at each other that's not not a risk of real harm. You don't usually hear about broken bones or major bruises like you do in the coercive control type. But sometimes there are bruises, but there isn't a sense of fear by either party, and there isn't a sense that one has control of the relationship over the other party, just that they may get a bit wild sometimes. Then there's another type that we see in divorce cases, which is uh, separation-instigated violence, which is where there hasn't been a history of violence in the relationship. But when they separate, there may be one or two incidents. You know, I've had cases where, you know, the couple's pulling on the same piece of paper, say, that's mine, I need that, no, that's mine. And I had a case where, you know, they're pulling and then the woman falls down and and my client, the husband, was like, oh, my goodness, you know. And so he just wanted to stay away after that. He, They were not. And she also said there's no history of violence there. But this was a violent incident. She got hurt and broke her glasses. So those are three. There's a fourth type, and that's what they call defending yourself. It's the protective violence where someone fights back, where you hear about like the battered spouse who then shoots and kills her ex or her husband while he's asleep in bed or something like that. It's the reactive, defensive violence. And it's very hard to succeed with that in court. There's women who've been in prison for decades because of killing an abusive husband. And it's starting now to be realized that that is a problem. Usually what happens is when someone does that defensive violence, um, they get hurt much worse. And so it's not like, oh, this makes things easy. The, the case of shooting the, the husband in bed while he's asleep is extremely rare. So those are four types. Yeah. And so that last one you're talking about, it's, is it like the, the person just finally snaps? It's like they, they really may fear for their life. 
And so they're violent back in a way, maybe they even have a gun and they shoot the person who's been abusive of them while they're awake in the middle of an abusive incident. But that's also where the victim gets killed. The thing is to get away. Fighting back may put your life in danger. Right, right. So in this in this situation with Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, the the allegation and the, I guess the genesis of the, this particular court battle is that Amber Heard had you know written in a publication something about domestic violence and it kind of insinuated um, that it was I guess those are my words that it was it was uh, Johnny Depp uh, perpetrated domestic violence on her. So he's he's filed this defamation suit, um, and I guess he decided it was worth fighting the battle to try to protect his name. I guess word got out that, you know, that that she had been saying that he was abusive even back in 2016. Apparently, he lost his Disney uh, Pirates of the Caribbean series, uh, which made him a really big star uh, back in 2016. Then in 2018, uh, the Washington Post had an op-ed article that apparently was written, I think, by the ACLU. It was helping her as she's trying to kind of come out as a, a victim's rights person and saying, I was a victim too, which implied that it was in the relationship with Johnny Depp. And so it was going to harm his future work. So he filed a defamation lawsuit. And the the thing with defamation is there's libel, which is in writing, and there's slander, which is verbally. And so clearly the Washington Post op-ed piece was in writing and clearly implied it was him. So he came back with a $50 million lawsuit for defamation. So they're being heard in a civil court with a jury. So it's going to be very interesting how this turns out, uh, because most cases, like in family law, is a single judge who often has substantial experience with domestic violence allegations and so may be pretty realistic at getting an idea of what's going on. But this will be jurors who may be real unfamiliar with this. And so we'll we'll see. It's, uh, it's really an educational opportunity because domestic violence is real. It's a problem. People die from it. It harms relationships. It hurts kids when they're exposed to parents fighting, even when they're not in the same room, they know this is happening. So it's an issue. I think the glamour of high society and celebrity on top of this makes it um, uh, attractive in a kind of voyeuristic way. And I guess I guess one of my hopes is what comes out of this is seeing both of them as, both of them as human beings. There isn't like a bad guy and a good guy here. They're just human beings, and we all have some bad things, and that we're seeing their bad things, which are very bad. I'm curious in trying to understand the case, what their dynamics are. So. Uh, I'm I'm not getting caught up in the testimony. I want to know what the big picture is. Yeah, it's it's uh, I haven't kept up with a lot of the testimony either, but I've seen uh, you know bits and pieces here and there and you you hear about uh Johnny Depp saying his he came from, you know, some kind of chaotic background perhaps growing up and um 
you know, most of the work that we do has, or a lot of it has, has some, some touch of trauma, um, from the past in it. And you kind of looked at this, at this person as a wounded person, perhaps that is, you know, along this healing process throughout their life. And, and then we hear, see on the other side, I think some evidence has been presented that, um, Amber has been diagnosed perhaps with borderline and per- perhaps histrionic personality disorders as well. Did, did you read anything about that, Bill? I read one thing saying that it's it's been alleged that she had borderline personality disorder. And that could explain some of her behavior because when someone has borderline personality disorder, they often have emotion dysregulation. So they have extreme emotions. And many of the domestic violence cases we see in family law and family court, people do have that borderline pattern of mood swings, explosion of rage, and then a period of remorse and, you know, sorry, and I'll never do it again kind of thing. We see that with men, actually, more male domestic violence with that borderline pattern than female, but it can be um, part of that. And that might help explain. And there's treatment for borderline personality disorder. And my hope out of all of this is they both need some help. That part I've become convinced of. Right. I mean, he has uh, self-admitted addiction issues. And uh, I mean, there's just there's so much here. And you just see the the perfect storm that has been building, the, you know, from the very beginning. I'm sure it was, you know, very wonderful at the beginning. <laughs> um, and I didn't expect it would ever, you know, end up in court like this. But, you know, the fight is on. Here we are. And it's it is is sad. And I, I agree I, with you that hopefully they will get some healing from this. Hopefully there will be that, you know, point of reckoning that they individually could have that would spur them to get, you know, some more help and and perhaps even filing the lawsuit as part of that. I, I don't know. Yeah, it's it's really tricky when people, the, the thing we see with high conflict personalities are they blame other people 100%. And so we see high conflict personalities in a lot of legal disputes taking zero responsibility for things that they may be 50 or even 80 or 90 percent responsible for. So I'd really like to get the big picture to see, is this someone who is not taking any responsibility or is this someone who realizes, yeah, I've got stuff to work on, but I also need to clear my name about things that I didn't do that I've been falsely accused of because true and false allegations show up in court a lot. And on the surface, they look alike. And so that's why, you know, you really want the full big picture to be able to really get a sense of, of what is going on here. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be on that jury. <laughs> <laughs> um, and speaking of jurors, do you think they will be able to keep an open mind? That's that's a potentially big problem because I think if you've grown up in um, the last, let's say, 100 years, um, <laughs> you've been exposed to a lot of people's bad behavior. And there's also been a lot of gender disputes, you know, what do men do? What do women do? And domestic violence is clearly more of a male behavior in terms of coercive control. That's probably maybe 85% men, but maybe 15% of women 
um, do some of that. And the situational couple violence is pretty much 50-50, men and women do. So, so, but there's gender, there's gender presumptions. And I think a lot of people may have already jumped to conclusions. I, I read somewhere that, that, uh, Johnny Depp has been testifying. And as of when we're recording this, I think he's only been the one on the stand that Amber Heard hasn't testified yet. And yet something like 40% of people think that he's right and they agree with him. Uh, 10% think she's right and they agree with her. And 50% say, we don't know what to think. Well, that's fascinating. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm with the 50% because I don't want to prejudge anything like this. We need a lot more information. And frankly, my experience as a lawyer, as a family lawyer, you know, having examination and cross-examination in my legal cases is I don't put a lot of weight on testimony. I want a lot of the Mm. outside information. I want to, you know, know who's looked at things. And so I think I think what you're going to see is there's the risk of people jumping to conclusions. And that's what they call confirmation bias. And this is a research term, but it affects people investigating abuse cases. Um, as a social worker, I got involved with child abuse cases well before I became a lawyer. And, and I, I know some social workers were not good at interviewing kids. They had an assumption and they got the kid to agree with it and give them statements that would agree that turned out to be totally impossible. You know, elephants being slaughtered on the Sunday school classroom floor and stuff like that. Oh dear. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the way you interview children and the way you interview anybody needs to be done uh, carefully. And so you need to have at least three theories. And this is what I like to teach. When someone says someone else is acting abusively, you have to consider first that it may be true. Domestic violence, child abuse, all of this. The second theory is it might not be true at all that the person is being falsely accused. It's possible that Johnny Depp really is someone who's a victim and has not physically abused uh, Amber Heard ever or anyone else. He says, I haven't been physical. I haven't been physically abusive with anyone. I believe he said that. And that could be true, and we have to keep the door open to that possibility. But the first possibility was that, no, no, he's done all these things. And that's a possibility, too, and you need to protect people from someone acting that way. The third possibility is that both people really are contributing. And in my mind, from what I've heard, I wonder if... One of these folks was coercively controlling the other, and it could be either way. Or if they both, if this is a situational couple violence, got got wild to the extreme. And I think you really have to seriously consider that theory. What I find, though, is in family law that many family law professionals have a presumption 
about one of these. And they'll say, when I hear about domestic violence, I always believe it. No one would lie about anything like that. It must be true. And I know lawyers, judges, mediators, and counselors who feel that way. And then I've heard people say, including judges and lawyers, when I hear about domestic violence in divorce cases, I just assume it's a, an effort to get an advantage in the case. And so I just, most of those cases aren't true. And then there's the, oh, I always assume it's both people. If one person's doing it, the other is too, and everything's 50-50. Well, None of those should be a presumption. You've really got to keep an open mind. And it isn't easy if you've grown up with someone who was abused or falsely accused. So it's, I really hope they have open minds. That emotional persuasion and your own experience, like you said, it can be, uh, you know, really put a confirmation bias on it and then you end up, uh, I, I just wouldn't want to have a jury <laughs> deciding my fate on something like this. But um, I do love that three theories of the case. And I, I've, I've been talking about it a lot since, since you uh, taught me about it really. Um, and just, it, it just helps people so much when they're going through a case to keep actually an entire case structured. Even if a court can't keep it structured or, you know, the other attorney is is really hammering away at something else, if you can even yourself keep it structured with those three theories and, and take some responsibility. Bill, so what would you consider in figuring out if a case is true or false? These are things that hopefully will get presented um, to the jury. And in cases like this, you need someone who's doing some investigation. Now, this, this type of case will have a lot of investigation because it's such high profile. But the questions to be really thinking about are what's the pattern of the relationship behavior? What's the patterns? Not did this incident take place or did that incident take place, but what's the pattern? Because the pattern makes me go, okay, it's more likely that he's lying or more likely that she's lying. Or they may honestly believe stuff that isn't true, which is another possibility in here. Mm. So what I would want to know is especially the power and control relationship. If one of them had coercive control of the other person, did did one of them dominate their decision-making and the other one go along with stuff because they feared challenging the person? And this could be either one. Celebrities get into abusive relationships sometimes where they're a victim. But there's also the good chance that, you know, Johnny Depp may have been the authority in the relationship and that she may have felt she couldn't challenge him. And some of these things were very exceptional. About their relationship with friends, did they, did they spend time with other people? What do friends say about what they observed? Not friends who just know one of them, friends who've seen both of them together and may be able to say something about what they saw unless they're really biased, which is one of the risks. I think there's already been that issue raised in this case, that somebody's a friend of one of them, and that's why they're saying what they're saying. But also, who had financial control? Is Was this something where one of them really controlled the, the checkbook and, and limited the other? And 
And what's interesting, this makes me flash on a celebrity case of Brian Wilson and also Britney Spears, where even though they were celebrities bringing in gazillion dollars, someone else had control. And there's the question of whether Brian Wilson was somewhat emotionally abused by his conservator and whether Britney Spears was emotionally abused by her father as her consp- uh, conservator. So you really need to see the big picture of dynamics and you're really going to have to hear from both of them before you even begin forming any kind of really useful opinion. And you've got to consider these three possibilities. Maybe he is the person that's caused all of this. And he's just fighting, fighting, fighting to clear his name, even though it's all his fault. Maybe she's the person that caused all of this, and he's really a victim. And maybe they both, they got situational couple violence that got more wild than in most cases. And that's sad to say, because they're so wealthy that they can get away with getting this deep into difficulty. Most people don't have the resources to get this extravagant in their bad behavior. So yeah. it's, a, it's a very, it's, it's a good educational opportunity, I think, for all of us to stop and think and really be careful about not being as judgmental as we'd like to be. But really, these are human beings. They need compassion. They need help. And they need an open mind. I 100% agree because it's so, we just have such a celebrity obsession (laughs) in our culture. Um, And and we just, I think, have this unrealistic perception that they have a a worry-free life because they are celebrities, because they have money and fame. And I I actually see that as, uh, those are things I wouldn't want in my life. Um, I mean, I, I I would want a lot of money, <laughs> but I wouldn't want the celebrity um, and the the fame. I, I just I, I, those are pressures that I wouldn't want in my life. And I think we want to believe that people don't have pressures when they're at, at that level of life. And I think they have more pressures in in ways that the rest of us don't have. And like you said, we have to keep it human. These are two human beings that just have a different job than the rest of us. <laughs> we all have different jobs and we all come from somewhere. We're all a recipe of of our whole, you know, lifetime, all the inputs, right? And And they just happen to take a little bit different career path, but it doesn't mean that that two, you know, maybe wounded people wouldn't get together just because they're celebrities. They're going to have the same things happen. And it's just going to be on such a bigger platform um, for the world to see. And and like you said, to have this as a learning opportunity, uh, you know, for for others in the world that ho- hopefully people will get some, uh, maybe take some feedback from this and and put it into their own lives kind of like what uh we've done with the book dating radar try to kind of look at what's happening in your relationship and take the time to get to know this other person while you're dating before you get financially entangled uh you know married uh having having a child together starting a business together living together all of those things there are clues. There are little tells that, you know, maybe this isn't the right person for me. Now, we we put that all in that book. And so I guess the question, Bill, is, do you think that if either of them had read 
dating radar in advance <laughs> that, <laughs> that they would have had any insight. I, I, I actually think they may have had insight if they'd read that in advance because it's clear their patterns of behavior uh, have some high conflict elements and both of them. And oh. if they had thought about that, and and we recommend, or at least I recommend that people wait at least a year before making those commitments, um, that during that year, you'll see these patterns of behavior we're talking about and the high conflict behavior of 100% blaming the other person, all or nothing thinking, unmanaged emotions, extreme behaviors. I always use holes in the wall as an example, and it sounds like that definitely happened here. So you've got high conflict people. You can usually see that well before a year, but not necessarily just in the first month or two. And so that's why they should read Dating Radar and wait a year. Right. I was at physical therapy this morning, and the the young man working on my shoulder, uh, somehow we started talking about uh, relationships, and he said he'd been in a relationship for about a year before he found out that his uh, girlfriend had multiple personalities <laughs> and uh, had three re different relationships going on and had different, definitely different, different personalities going with each one, you know, different tones of voice. Um, different, she used the same name, but different. It was really fascinating. And I thought uh, it was, I guess I was a little bit shocked that it took a year to figure that out. Um, but, you know, maybe he just wasn't looking and he definitely hadn't read Dating Radar. <laughs> but uh, then he said his next girlfriend after that um, turned out had a, a pretty, pretty bad alcohol um, addiction. And uh, mm. I said, well, sounds like you need to read this book and <laughs> get get your get, get uh, maybe a little bit more direction and get your picker fixed. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I'll be taking him that book. Yeah, excellent. And that's so, so many people just, just are caught by surprise. Oh. And there's patterns of behavior and, and they call that a dissociative identity disorder when someone seems to have more than one personality. And it does seem to be a real thing. And there's treatment for some of these things. And so I want to make sure our listeners know we're not talking about you know, we're talking about dating to avoid getting into relationships with someone with these problems. But people with these problems should get help, and then right. they won't have these problems or at least have a, have a ability to manage them. So we, we like to have empathy for everyone. Absolutely. But with eyes wide open. Right, right. And we, we wrote that book to really help people have eyes wide open and not to be judgmental, but just to be aware and, and make the best decisions for yourselves, because these can be, it can be really tricky when you, you know, have a romantic feelings for, for someone and um, you're in love and in lust and um, it really can cause some, some blindness and you don't, you don't, you aren't necessarily looking for those things. So as you and I both know, a lot of the people who've read the book, it was done in hindsight after they'd been, you know, through a high conflict divorce or just, you know, some tragedy or trauma with it. And we really intended it for it to be a preventive tool. So hopefully more and more people will will be taking note, <laughs> especially the younger generations. They seem to be more interested in, in looking out for those things. So anyway, well, I think what we'll do is 
see where this case goes over the coming weeks and um, maybe have a follow-up episode and see what happens after the jury comes back. We should also make sure to mention that we do have a domestic violence video series of six one-hour in relation to family court, and that's on our website. And I also want to mention that I did a Psychology Today blog on March 31st entitled, Does Your Relationship Include Coercive Control? So if listeners are interested in more resources, Dating Radar, the series of six domestic violence videos, interviews with 16 experts, and this uh, Psychology Today article. Nice. And we'll put all those in the show notes, um, and you'll be able to, to find all those very easily. Next week, we're going to continue talking about high-conflict divorce with someone who's been there. Now, there are a lot of stories. People, There are a lot of people that have had high-conflict divorces and a lot of stories. But this one is unique in that uh, she was able to be pretty successful throughout the legal case. Um, And because she used strategies that she learned from Bill's book, Five Types of People Who Can Ruin Your Life, um, and some other reading, and she's very a very thoughtful person and uh, has has really done a great, great job, you know, maintaining her own um, sense of identity throughout this and taking care of her child, putting the child's best interest first and 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 managing the longer term relationship and, and how she's going to talk about how uh, what she did in the court uh, case. And I think you'll find it really enjoyable. So you want to tune in for that. And if you have any questions, remember, just send them to podcast at highconflictinstitute.com or submit them to highconflictinstitute.com slash podcast. And if you're enjoying our podcast uh, and learning something new, we'd love to hear about it. Uh, please leave us a rate and review and we're, we'd just be very grateful. So until next week, have a great one and keep striving toward peace. It's All Your Fault is a production of True Story FM. Engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Wolf Samuels, John Coggins, and Ziv Moran. Find the show, show notes, and transcripts at truestory.fm or highconflictinstitute.com slash podcast. If your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Our show.